Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. today with Dan Gregory, who's a behavioral researcher and strategist, and you're the CEO of the Impossible Institute. Now, I thought I had a, an, a weird <laughs> company title being the CEO of tomorrow. People always give me uh, crap about that, but you definitely take, takes the cake, I think, the Impossible Institute. Well, <laughs> we, we kind of took the name from a methodology that we have. So uh, it, it's all about asking an impossible question. So if you think back to when you were doing mathematics in, in early high school, you know, the, the one thing they would say to you is you can't square root a negative number. But then you kind of get it to the upper grades of high school and all of a sudden they say, you know what, we're going to make the square root of negative one equal I or, or equal J if you're stud- studying engineering. And all of a sudden a whole lot of mathematics becomes possible that wasn't possible before. And what we realized was there was a limitation in the way we approach problem solving in that we, 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 we found limits in, in, the, in the impossible sections and we didn't go any further. So we've started with uh, a methodology with clients, getting them to ask an impossible question. So an example of that might be, uh, what would a restaurant with no menu and no food look like? And of course that sounds an impossible question, but the answer is, well, if you had a master chef based in the middle of a fresh food market and people purchased their own food and brought it to them, to, to the chef to prepare, all of a sudden you've got a restaurant that works with no menus, no food, no food wastage. <laughs> so again, and, and a great example of that, you know, the people that are probably getting the most attention for that at the moment are people like the Ubers and the Airbnbs. You know, what does a, a taxi company look like with no taxi? What does a hotel group look like with no hotels? So again, by moving through the impossible question, you actually get to a point where a possibility you never imagined is possible. I like that. It also sounds like a Jorge Luis Borges novel. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think it's fantastic. And you also were the author of a a great book, um, Selfish, Scared and Stupid, um, which isn't a a handbook for modern dating, right? (laughs) No, well, yeah, it's it's certainly one of the issues that that we have with the title is... um, we actually had the conversation before we released it is would someone sit on a train holding this book in their hands you know, wanting to be identified as selfish and stupid but it, what it's really about is the fact that it, you know our survival brain still calls dibs on all of our decision making right so it's not it's not the uh, prefrontal cortex that everyone likes to think about no i mean that's that's where all the attention goes that's the sexy part of the brain everyone right. likes the prefrontal cortex you know that's you know that's where all music and mystery and, and magic comes from um, but the, the amygdala, the most primitive part of the brain... Which is that, from the dinosaurs, right? Well, absolutely. It's the reptilian part of the brain. Mm. And, it, and its job is essentially to keep us alive. So it, it's fundamentally driven by being selfish, scared and stupid. In other words, it looks for how to... You know, what's in it for you? You know, it's looking at, out of self-interest. It's looking to mitigate risk, but it also has a bias towards the simplest and easiest solution. Now, those don't sound like great things, but if you think about it, looking out for number one, mitigating risk, and having a bias towards simplicity is actually a recipe for success. And so that's what we really played about was the fact that this less sexy part of the brain, this, these characteristics that we don't like to associate with ourselves, are actually fundamental. If we want to drive change, if we want to drive engagement, we need to align with people's more primitive brains and before they can engage with us at high levels as well. Do you think we as humans are aware when our reptilian brain is kicking in or it's happening at a more subconscious level? It's absolutely at a subconscious level. We don't like to think about it. I mean, the, uh, 
The American Bureau of Psychology, uh, not the Bureau of Psychology, the American Journal of Psychology, uh, did a number of studies uh, around this. And what they found was things like, you know, when a human being is reversing out of a parking lot, if they see another human being waiting to take the spot, they reverse out more slowly. Even though it fights out against our fundamental goal, which is to, to get out of the parking lot, get on the road and go home and get on with our lives, we become territorial, we become defensive. And it's, it's very much at the subconscious level. But those kinds of micro decisions <laughs> are happening everywhere in our lives, every, all the way through our days. Thank, thank God the prefrontal cortex is there to stop us like urinating around the spot <laughs> to mark the territory, right? It's a, it's a well, very fine line. We're very close. <laughs> yeah. but I wonder, because I look at some of these new online behaviours, like the way that... We've embraced Facebook and we're constantly checking messages and seeing who's you know, liking our posts. Is that also a kind of a, an outreach from the more ancient part of our consciousness and brain? Or yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think it is. I think it's, it's, it's a way of getting a sense of ourselves. So if you have a look at books like Eli Parisi's The Filter Bubble, oh. you know, what he talks about is the fact that the internet, rather than giving us access to a world of information, actually, you know, the, uh, the internet actually learns who we are and filters back our own opinion to us. So if we're a religious conservative, we get a whole lot of information that's targeted that way. Or if we're, we're social liberals, we get information filtered back that way. Right, so it's actually reducing diversity. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's re- reducing diversity of input. Mm. And what it's doing is, is it's creating greater polarization within communities. So if you look at things like, a, a, you know, a election campaigns today, there's far less middle ground than there was, say, 20, 30 years ago. And part of the reason is people are having, you know, what we inverted commas would refer to as facts filtered back to them that reinforce their existing positions. So not only do they have a particular opinion, but they have more ammunition that proves that their opinion is the only correct opinion. Mm. So that's, that's one of the things that happens. And again, that's about self-interest. But it's also about risk mitigation. You know, the, the, the idea that other people's views contain some kind of fearful outcome for us makes people far more attached to the, to, you know, to the position that they're staking out. So if you take this, this view that essentially human beings are uh, primitive or at least you know, are driven by very base desires, as a corporation or a brand, how do you design around that? Well, I think what's really interesting in... Um, in brands and corporations, is, is we, we tend to iron the humanity out of our brands and right. squeeze the humanity out of our corporations. And I think, you know, that's a fundamental problem. I think, it, I think it was fine in an industrial revolution model where work was scarce and people were desperate and you could, you, could, you, you know, realize success based on hierarchical models of leadership. Right. And quite frankly, the factory was better than the field. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I think today when you see, you know, consumers have more choice than they've ever had before. They've got access to markets that they never had before and, you know, they can import for themselves. If you have a look at, you know, the, the opportunities that say Gen Y and Gen Z has in terms of, of work fulfillment and the fact that, you know, all of a sudden employers are having to compete for them as opposed to the other way around. You know, the power has shifted and we've moved from a hierarchy to more of, you know, how do we create cultures of the willing? How do we create customers and constituents that become evangelists for us, that, that actually become sales tools ourselves, you know, them, themselves? That, that fundamentally shifts um, a lot of the, the, the power uh, the corporations once had and the brands once had. And I think what we need to do is to understand how does that corporation now reflect on that human being? You know, how does that brand, uh, or, or rather, who does that brand help me to be? Hmm. So if you think about the fact that, you know, 
you know, identity is really what's driving our decision making. If, if you go back and you have a look at the, the history of the behavioral sciences, you have a look at people like Blaise Pascal who talked about decision theory. And basically, so basically all, all human theories, all human decisions are based on logic. I look at all of my available options, I weigh up the pros and cons, and I make the most logical decision possible, which of course doesn't really show up in human behavior. So then we, <laughs> then we kind of move to, to the great disappointment of economists. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> wouldn't it be terrific if they did? You know, and certainly employers would love that. Um, and then we, yeah, we moved into this, this emotional field, you know, you know, people like Daniel Goleman, emotional intelligence, you know, emotion is driving us. And then we moved again, you know, Simon Sinek came out and talked about why, uh, you know, understanding, you know, the why that's motivating people. The problem with why is it's often temporary. Hmm. You know, I mean, you know, if I've got a big enough why to go on a diet, a school reunion or a wedding or a hot date, I can lose the weight. I hit the treadmill, <laughs> I eat nothing but lettuce and I lose weight, but it's hard to maintain. And oftentimes we're so consumed with our why that we forget that actually what's driving people is their why. So the more we're able to shift from talking to people about products and services and roles and, and, and corporate vision and more about anchoring our objectives, our goals in terms of their values hierarchy, mm. how they're filtering the world, what their why is, that's far more um, fundamental in terms of engagement. How do you do that at scale, though? I mean, if, if a brand means something different for everyone's different set of identity values, uh, how do you do that? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Uh, and I'll give you an example um, that I think brings that to life. I, um, one of the things I do when I'm not you know, speaking to audiences or, or running my business is I'm a director on the, the board of White Ribbon, which is an international campaign to end men's violence against women. Right. Now, I'm obviously a man. Um, I come from a family that where, you know, my primary male role model, my father, was absolutely nonviolent. There, you know, so I wasn't exposed to that. It wasn't, it wasn't my issue. Until I was 19 years of age, you know, studying business at university, I picked up a marketing textbook and there was a poster. And it was, it was, uh, it was written by Tom McGilligan, art directed by Nancy Rice. And Tom McGilligan was this this doyen of, of the advertising world in the 1980s, based out of Minneapolis, of all places. Um, and, you know, it transformed the way I saw the world. It was a simple headline that, that brought a statistic to life. It said, one in four women will be raped in her lifetime. Will it be your mother, your sister, your daughter, or your wife? And it was, it was an extraordinary moment for me in two reasons. Number one, it made me realize that women's safety, violence against women was a man's issue too, was my issue. Mm. Put it in my backyard. But just as, in, well, just as importantly in my, in, in my world, it actually taught me what selling is really about. You know, the sale is never in the product or the cause, it's always in the prospect. It's always on the other side of the table. Mm. And what I realized was that was, instead of talking to me about the work they were doing or the change they were trying to make, they said, hey, this is your issue. This matters to you. They framed, their agenda in terms of my values and they had buy-in and and that experience as a 19 year old has informed all of the work i think i have i've done since so it's one of those you know everyone has those 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 key moments in their life where where you know a tangent shoots out and your life takes a new direction that you know very much professionally taught me what it took to to lead to engage to to uh to really create buy-in this is not the same as getting people to use a hashtag, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, although, it, you know, the hashtag is another example of that. Right. Because the hashtag is all about, is, is all about linking 
to fields of interest. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also, you know, I'm fascinated because there are all these sort of hashtag sub-communities now on Instagram of, mm-hmm. you know, of people almost forming collective groups based on their interests. But it's less formal than, say, signing up for a, a course. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what you've identified is, is what businesses and corporations are having to deal with now. My, you know, we used to say that my target market was geographically defined. If I'm based on the east coast of the United States, I've got an east coast target market. If I'm based in China, well, I've got a Chinese market. Yeah. Well, now that's, that's no longer the case. And it's not just in terms of export. But the idea that our communities are no longer formed along demographic or geographic, or geographic lines. Yeah. They're now along lines of value. You know, it's now possible for um, a 50-year-old man to have as much in common with a 20-year-old woman, and not just because 50-year-old men desperately want to have Everything in common with yeah. a 20-year-old woman. But, you know, for instance, my business partner's husband is a, is a 56-year-old stay-at-home dad. Hmm. In terms of how he spends his time, where he shops, what he's looking for, what he's engaged with, He's got more in common with a young mum in her 20s or 30s than he does with other men in their 50s. Please tell me he's not on Snapchat. He's not on Snapchat. Because that would be terrifying and disturbing. No, I think he's sufficiently <laughs> Luddite to have avoided it. But, but again, you know, it's, it's, it's a different world. And, the, the, uh, you know, Kieran, my business partner, and I do some training with entrepreneurs. So we work, we work a lot with um, people who can never afford to work with a business strategist or or with a marketing strategist, and we run them through a year-long program and help them facilitate answers to their, to their problems. And we were in Perth, in, in Western Australia, uh, a few months ago, and it was the lunchtime break. There were 500 people in the room we were talking to, and these two young girls came up to us and gave us their business cards. And, we, you know, they were tall because they were of Dutch descent, but we could see that they were, uh, they were young, and we said, okay, well, you know, can, can you tell us about your businesses, but first tell us your age? And the first one said, well, I'm 12. Um, and my business is, I do design and illustration for people's websites and their digital communications. 12? 12. And I went, okay, that's interesting. And and I said to the, to the other one, you know, how old are you? And she said, well, I'm 14 and I've got two businesses. My first business is I source clothes from all around the world that make other 14-year-old girls feel good about their bodies. And then I sell online to people all around the world. I said, okay, what's your other business? She said, the other business is an e-publishing business. Essentially, I find young authors from all around the world. I edit their material and then distribute through an e-publishing platform books to young girls all around the world. And what struck me, apart from the fact that great parents, was, yeah. you know, I think about, you know, when Kieran and I started our business some, I don't know, 25, got getting on to 30 years ago, that didn't happen. The internet didn't exist. There was, you know, this, these are two young girls in the most remote capital city anywhere on the planet building international businesses and building the first of international businesses. I mean, Lord knows what they'll have done by the time they finish high school. But again, I think that that kind of thinking, you know, that our community is no longer about who's next door and very much about who are we connecting, not just to ourselves, but to each other. I think that's a really important distinction. One of the ideas that you talk about and write about that I find really fascinating is, is the fact that many companies don't really design for failure. Uh, in other aspects of engineering, we think about failure, but we don't think about preparing for inevitably the unpredictable things that humans do. Can you, can you give me, your, your, I guess, your riff on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, one of the things that, that, that we found in our careers is a lot of what people talk about 
particularly in business literature or in, in self-help and personal development, doesn't act, isn't what shows up in the real world. They're the same thing, aren't they, these days? Well, <laughs> they're, they're, they're trending that way. Um, and, and oftentimes you see a lot of academic material versus, versus stuff that's written by people who've actually been in business and started business. And it's not that that's not great. It's just that the, the, the sample size that you can test in is far greater in the real world than it is in an academic situation. Yeah. And one of the things we found is that you know, people talk a lot about motivation and discipline as being critical to success. And absolutely, they're, they're useful, but they're, they're short-term strategies because no one is going to be disciplined every day, every hour, every second. And no one is motivated in every area of their lives. So what we're looking to do is how do we design with the idea that human failure is going to happen anyway? How do we design with a bias towards success and a bias against failure? And the example you talked about, you know, engineering, if you think about aeronautical engineering and how we've designed planes over the past you know, century or so, that multi-plane air, uh, airlines are able to stay in the air even if one of the engines goes out right. and land safely. You know, that's a, a margin of failure that very few businesses, very few individuals and very few teams factor into their into their, um, uh, their, their strategy and their planning. Um, and a great example I heard about this was in a hospital where people weren't washing their hands after they went to the restroom. So, you know, they tried to motivate people. They said, come on, wash your hands. They, they tried to, you know, be a bit punitive about it and they put, you know, very angry signs up, wash your hands. <laughs> um, and again, they didn't see much of an uptake. What they ended up doing, which I thought was terrific, was they took the handles that you pulled against to open the door to the restroom off the door and they replaced it with a waterless hand wash. So you had to pull waterless hand wash into your hand just to get out of the restroom. <laughs> so they designed for 0% failure. And I thought what a, it was such a terrific idea, uh, you know, and such a, such a, 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 a thought outside the, the traditional way that we solve problems. But you're right, it, it, it almost requires a kind of a macabre view of human nature. <laughs> to, to well, I think it, but it's very realistic, I guess. Not so much macabre, but I think realistic. I mean, I, I, I think it's, you know, there's humour in it. Because it's one of those things that, you know, we, we, we tend to try and present ourselves to the world as if we are always on best behaviour, as if we are always the first date version of ourselves. Mm. And yet, I think one of the reasons comedians resonate with people is is they tell the truth that everyone knows, but no one's actually said out loud before. And it's that that nervous relief that drives laughter. Like, oh, thank God, I'm not the only one. Yeah. I mean... You're, you're not laughing because it's funny. You're, you're laughing because you're terrified. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's let that go. It's yeah. the recognition and the, oh, we're all in the same boat. I'm okay. And I, I think another terrific example of that is um, Tontine Pillows uh, in Australia did a... Um, uh, very simple innovation on, on their product recently it was they put uh, use by dates on their pillows and if you think about it for years you know they've been telling us about this you know the bacteria and the ecosystem that grows in our pillows and it's it's gross and it's disgusting and I know I'm not alone we're all looking at our pillows thinking just how yellow does it have to get before I change it but this use by date actually gives me a, a, a measure for when it needs to be changed over it makes it easy for me to make the right decision and not only is this driven initial sales, it's driving repeat sales because people's frequency of buying pillows has actually increased. You know, the, the gap between buying pillows has decreased. So I think, you know, yes, it's a, it's a clever observation. It wasn't a new innovation. They, you know, they stole from the FMCG category yeah. and applied it to, you know, a category that's never used it before. And it's, it's been significant in changing the way they saw what they did. 
This applies to some of these new digital experiences as well, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, people talk about how amazing these new apps are that we use every day, but a lot of those have been successful because they've identified the sources of frictional stupidity. Absolutely. <laughs> that well, we would naturally do if they hadn't got rid of it. Absolutely. I think, I think frictionless process is what everyone should be aiming for. And if you think about... You know, if we had to put a credit card in every time we ordered an Uber, we would never order one, would we? Well, exactly. And, and if, if you think it feels about... feels like it's free. If you think about things like tap and go, yeah. which um, you know, countries like Australia were very early to adopt. This has it, been one of the most successful implementations of tap and go in the world, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And because it makes it simple, it, it again reduces the friction. But even you know, if you look at the United States, you look at Bank of America, hmm. who had their, their um, uh, I want to call it the Roundup program, but I'll oh, keep the change is what it was called. Ah, yeah. uh, you know, this idea that you know, every time I buy a $4.50 coffee, that 50 cents rounds up to five and goes into an account I don't get to see. So in other words, they've made saving money frictionless. And we know from around the world that the only way human beings ever save money and keep it is when it's frictionless. When I take a direct debit from your, your paycheck and put it into a separate account, not your working account, before you even get to see the money. So I think that that's what Selfish Scared and Stupid about is really about is how do we create processes and systems for ourselves and for our people that are as frictionless as possible. This gets controversial when we start getting into this aspects of nudging people's behavior, right? Yeah. When it becomes unconscious. Like I know there are some companies like Google, for example, that the way they design their canteens, uh, they put the high calorie f food below food level, below eye level, and they restrict the size of the plates. Uh, so you can eat the candy, but they make it more difficult for you at a psychological level to make that decision. Yes, which is the exact opposite of what supermarkets do. Right. The exact opposite, because supermarkets want, want the not that good for you, uh, highest margin product at, at the level that you want. And, and, and companies pay a premium for that. And we put the candy bars and the magazines and the children's books at the checkout so that, you know, at pram height, so they're reachable <laughs> from kid, for kids. So yeah, it's, and, and again, so we've, we've been doing that forever. It's just that now people are starting to say, well, hang on, maybe we can use this for good, not just evil. Hmm. And I think that's the interesting conversation. You know, this idea that, um, you know, ch changing behavior by understanding how people have a, um, a, a built to work, you know, how do we work with human nature? I mean, you know, we're sitting at your place here in Bondi, I'm looking out, out the window at the surf, and one of the things you learn about swimming the surf is go with a friend because they're sharks. Go with well, yeah. Well, go with a, go with go with an English friend because they're they're poorer swimmers. Um, but I think the other thing is if you get caught up in a riptide, swim with the current, not against it. Right. And I think in terms of the way we we engage our customers and our staff, how do we create buying? Is we we get greater chances of buying if we swim with the current of human nature versus trying to get people to change to fit our systems, which is what we've traditionally done. It's funny though, because the big trend is to talk these days in corporate circles about resilience yes. and, and being resistant you know, to things that change. Uh, but what you're talking about, and I've, I've seen you write and speak about this, is what you call cognitive agility. Yeah, exactly. Which is the opposite, really, of being sort of stubborn. Well, it, it's, it's kind of the opposite. And, and my issue with resilience is, because it's, and it's such a corporate buzzword at the moment, is <laughs> we're being inundated with change. I'm, oh, Dan, I need my people to be more resilient. Hmm. You know, which is the equivalent of saying, Dan, can you come in and say to my people, suck it up, precious? And the problem is, you're, you know, you say that once and your best staff will suck it up and they'll come back. You say it twice, your best staff will suck it up and come back. You say it three times, all of a sudden their LinkedIn profiles start getting attention. And I think that's one of the problems with it, with resilience, is resilience is coping with change 
Whereas agility is seeing change as fuel. Right. It's 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 about flexibility, and if you know the the, the metaphor is if you think about yeah. you know the oak tree, it's incredibly resilient in the storm until it breaks. Whereas bamboo is 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 strong but flexible. You know, it actually survives the storm. It's it's it it survives change because it, it can actually be more adaptable, more flexible, more more you know agile in in its cognition. Hmm. I think one of the biggest issues we have is we we have such locked in ways of thinking as individuals, particularly those of us who are intelligent, who are well-read, who are well-educated. We know so much about a particular area. We know so much about the way things should be done or have been done that we can't see how they, they might be done. And we end up with contextual blindness. In other words, we're, we're so blinkered that we can't see other opportunities or other ways of, of solving problems. And it's why diversity is such a critical issue in, inside large, large organisations. You know, quite often, you know, I'll be brought in to, to do a, a cultural audit and the CEO will introduce me to their team and they'll introduce me to a female version of themselves, to a Chinese version of themselves, to, to an Indian version of themselves. And, and they've got diversity in terms of, of gender and in terms of ethnicity, but they haven't got cognitive diversity because everyone's having the same conversation. Right. And what we know is that the more diverse a group is, the more openly they uh, collaborate, the higher the collective IQ is. How do you, I mean, it's easy to recognize different ethnicities, but how do you recognize and test for different ways of thinking? Look, I think that's really key. And, and it's why I think people like Myers-Briggs and, and personality types have been have been so um, you know powerful in the marketplace because people have recognised the need. Presumably, we shouldn't be using star signs, right? No, no. I, you know, it's all. Though it's funny, the 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 process that Kieran and I use is originally attributed to Plato, hmm. um, and it is based in you know the four elements: the you know the fire, water, air, and earth. Um, but I, but I also think you know when, you know whenever Kieran and I have hired staff, and this sounds counterintuitive, we've we've always looked for people that were slightly irritating. Not completely irritating, but what we've realised is, is that the people that irritate us are the ones asking questions that we don't ask oh. ourselves. They can see the gaps in our thinking. Yeah. Um, and we tend not to think about that. We tend to... The reason we hire versions of ourselves is because, you know, we'll sit down and we'll have a conversation. We'll go, oh my God, I love talking to Mike. He's awesome. But the truth is, Mike's coming from the same position we are, and that's why it's easy. But this is the fashion, isn't it? Like, I mean, companies like Zappos and Google, they're actually looking for cultural fit, cultural homogeneity. Yeah. So what you're actually saying is they actually should be looking for people that aren't Googly at all. Well, I think that's, a, that's, that's actually a really good example. And, and, and I, my answer would be yes. I mean, one of the interesting things, and you speak in front of big corporate audiences as, you know, as much as I do, and what you find is when you look out at a big corporate audience, we've got a perspective that no one in the audience has. And what we see is homogeny. Everyone is dressed the same way. Everyone has the same haircut. Everyone clearly went to the same kind of school. You know, they're having the same con kind of conversations. And then you go to another industry and then everyone else is completely different, but in exactly the same way. Right. So we're all individuals together. <laughs> and But that's what human beings do. Again, it's... You know, you know, we talk about collective nouns for, for different creatures, but human beings tribe. You know, we look for, and, and one of the things we do in tribes is we, we push towards homogeny. We try to push individuality out of tribes because that creates conflict, but, but there's actually value in, in um, constructive conflict. It doesn't mean, you know, we need people that are, you know, fundamentally tearing us down all the time. But this idea that you know our, our worldview can be challenged is actually a good thing. Dan, it's been great to see you. 
Thanks for being on the show. Likewise, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Cheers. Mate. Cheers. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.